Proctors and conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. CatsConf 2 will be taking place in Dublin, Ireland on the 18th of February. CatsConf is a single-track, not-for-profit conference with hands-on workshops. With an amazing lineup, it looks to be an exciting conference. Visit catsconf.com, that's K-A-T-S-C-O-N-F dot com, for more information and to register. Closure D has been announced and will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on February 25th. Early bird tickets have sold out, but regular tickets are still available. And you can get a discount when you purchase your tickets for WildConf. For more information and to register, visit www.closured.de. And the day before Closure D on the 24th of February in Berlin, BobConf will be taking place. Bob has a strong focus on functional programming, and Bob is a forum for developers, architects, and builders to explore technologies beyond the mainstream and to discover the best tools available today for building software. With a keynote by John Hughes, the goal is for all participants to leave the conference with new ideas to improve development back at the ranch. For more information about the conference, visit bobconf.de. That's B-O-B-E-K-O-N-F dot D-E. Elixir Days is coming up on March 2nd and 3rd in St. Augustine, Florida. Early registration is now open, and the conference includes keynotes by Craig Dave Thomas and Saucer Urch. Visit elixirdays.com. That's elixirdaze dot com to keep updated for information and to register. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event March 27th through the 30th. The Unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summer Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. Erlang and Elixir Factory 2017 is on the 23rd and 24th of March. This factory includes a tutorials day on March 25th and training on the 20th through the 22nd and 27th through the 30th of March. Early World tickets are on sale through February 26th. To keep updated with information, visit www.erling-factory.com slash sfbay2017. The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference will be taking place April 2nd through the 5th of 2017 in New York. The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference is the professional training event that's not just for software architects, but for any engineer, programmer, developer, or team leader who does part of an architect's job. You'll get coverage from the most important topics of the day, from highly respected expert leading sessions, hands-on tutorials, and in-depth professional training. If your job involves architecting and defining systems, evaluating tools and technologies, leading teams or mentoring others, and collaborating with system stakeholders, you'll want to be there. Save 20% with discount code USRG. For more information, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 50017. Flatmap Oslo call for presentations is open through March 1st. Flatmap Oslo is an FP conference with a focus on Scala and the JVM taking place May 2nd and 3rd in Oslo, Norway. Please go to 2017.flatmap.no slash cfp to learn more. And announcements of speakers are being done on Twitter at at Flatmap Oslo. Elixir ConfU will be taking place May 4th and 5th with the Tutorials Day on May 3rd. Elixir ConfU is a community conference created to promote education, networking, and collaboration within the Erlang, Elixir, and Ruby communities. Early bird tickets are available until March 18th. For more information, visit www.elixirconf.eu. OSCON will be taking place May 8th through the 11th in Austin, Texas. The O'Reilly Open Source Convention combines the experience of the open source community with ideas and strategies for using open source tools and technologies 
and gives you exposure to the full stack and all possible configurations. There's no event quite like Osgon, the best place on earth to sharpen your skills and discover new techniques, making you better at what you do and igniting your love of all things code. Registration is now open, and you can save 20% on most passes with the code USRG. For more information and register, visit www.orelli.com slash pub slash cpc slash 50016. Elm Europe will be taking place on June 8th and 9th in Paris, France. Evan Zaplicki and Richard Feldman will be speaking, and early bird tickets are currently available, but there's no telling how long they will last. For more information and to register, and to submit your talk, visit elmeurope.org. Euroclosure will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on July 20th and 21st. Euroclosure is the biggest closure conference in Europe. Founded in 2012, the conference is a great place to meet closure developers and learn about what's happening in the language, in the community, and in companies using closure. The CFP will open Monday, March 13th, and closes Friday, April 21st, and registration will open March 21st. Visit 2017.euroclosure.org for more information and to keep updated. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Iris Proctor, and this week we have Nikki Vizu. Nikki, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, Proctor. Thank you for having me. I recently finished my PhD from UC San Diego, and now it's my second week of my postdoc program at the University of Maryland. And I came across you on Twitter, I believe, a couple of times, and then recently I saw you had finished your PhD announcement was saying, yay, I finished my PhD, and it relates to Liquid Haskell. Yeah. And I had heard some stuff about Liquid Haskell, even back as far, I think, as three or four years ago, when I first had Simon Peyton Jones on, I think he mentioned that Liquid Haskell was one of these things that were upcoming, but never really knew about Liquid Haskell. So I'd love to get you to expand on Liquid Haskell and what it is and PhD, but I guess first... How did you get exposed to this stuff to decide you want to go and get a PhD, get exposed to Haskell, and decide you're going to do whatever it is that Liquid Haskell does for those of us who aren't quite familiar with it? Well, I got exposed to Haskell actually in my introductory to computer science class back in my undergrad at National Technical University of Athens. So there we have a course that was Introduction to Computer Science. And unlike most other universities that do some imperative programming like Java or something, our introduction to computer science course was a very hardcore algorithm course. And it actually had some lectures that introduced us to Haskell and uh, Prolog and different programming languages. So then I first saw Haskell and I liked it very much. And this was mostly the reason why I got into the programming languages, because I still don't consider myself like an imperative programmer. I don't understand pointers and I don't 
understand how to optimize memory management. So I love it that Haskell is so high level that does everything automatically for you. And so after this introductory course, I got into more um, math and computer science courses like uh, logic and lambda calculus and type systems. So when I finished my undergrad, I had a solid foundation of what type systems are and what Haskell is. And I joined a graduate program at UC San Diego. And that was, I think, 2011, when the theory of liquid types had started. And actually, there was a very nice liquid types paper, and there was an implementation in ML. And my first project as a graduate student was to take the implementation of liquid types for ML and port it to Haskell. And there was a funny story because when I started this course, I told it to my lab mate and he actually asked me, like, what is the contribution of this project? How are you going to publish with this porting liquid types from OCaml to Haskell? And I, and I had no idea. And I was like six years later and I still work on liquid Haskell and I have a huge to-do list on new features and what is next in the Liquid Haskell world. So you were one of those who got exposed pretty early on in your software development life cycle of being exposed to some of these languages that are the foreign, odd-thinking languages. If you got the prologue and Haskell pretty early on and in introductory courses, instead of just saying, we're going to start with Pascal or C++ or Java or whatever industry is saying we should be teaching with, because that's what people come out into the world and use. You got this early on. So if Haskell clicked for you at that point, do you have any idea of what made Haskell click if you were looking at some of these languages? Was there something in your background that said, this one makes sense? Or was it just, these all kind of made sense equally, but Haskell feels nice? Yeah, I think the reason why it clicked is that I had no idea about programming. I had no idea about low-level things and what happens in the memory and what is a pointer. But I had a good mathematical background. So with this mathematical and no computer background, I think Haskell and all the functional programming languages work better. So my experience is that it's very difficult to persuade an, an imperative programmer to use Haskell because they have like a very solid way to write programs and a very solid way to take an algorithm and think about memory management and all these. And if you put this way of thinking into the functional world, it's wrong. You need a very different mindset to actually code in Haskell and in the functional functional programming languages. And so the functional programming made sense with the math background. And where did the types fit in? And if you're coming in, people talk about the introduction of Haskell and being, well, if I can do a simple program that doesn't need any outside influence, I can kind of make those pure, simple calculation programs in Haskell relatively straightforward because I don't need the IO monad or the state monad. And maybe types may or may not make some sense to me. What was that kind of stuff looking like when you're coming in and learning this? Was that just something that they built up naturally or was there a little bit of learning curve on the type side or or the monad side as you're coming in and starting this without that prior background of the imperative side that you've seen you have to convince people of how to think this way? So types, I think they make sense as 
math makes sense in the sense that if you have a little idea about how type checking works and how lambda calculus works, then types do make sense, like simple types, not all these extensions that Haskell has, because there are very simple typing rules that are just applied in your code and uh, type checking checks that the rules are enforced and it just works. There is a learning curve, like when you first see the type errors, it takes you a lot of time to understand them, but then you see the same type errors again and again. So then after some time, you're like, the machine learning algorithm that you have in your mind works and say, oh, I saw that this time, so this is the fix, most probably. The other thing is that types work very well as documentations of your function. So especially Haskell has this uh, searching machine that is called Hoogle, that when you're looking for a function, you can write down the type of the function and it makes suggestions according to the types. So for example, if you know that you have a list that has pairs of A's and B's and you have an A and you want to look what's this A maps to in the list, then you know the type, but you don't know the name of the function, so you just write down the type that you think you're looking for, and Hoogle will just give it back to you. So it's a very good way to document your code and to look for functions that exist with the type that you're looking for, and most probably this function will do what you want. So monads is a different thing from types, because monads is basically the very smart way that the Haskell community has to let you think that you're coding like imperative code by state mutation and everything. But so the nice thing is that you're using all this monadic do notation and everything translates to pure code. And there is a huge learning curve on that. So I first started writing this do notation. Then I learned how this do notation translates to pure code. And after a lot of time, I realized what exactly is going on on the background. So, yeah, it's a very smart trick that the Haskell people enforced and make our lives easier because we think that we are mutating Excel state and we pass around arguments, but everything goes down to pure code. And so you pick up Haskell you start to get addicted to it, and you're like, this fits my way of thinking. This is my programming language. This fits me. You go on, and you start to do a bunch more courses in your undergrad, and then you go on to graduate school, and you you come across this liquid types. So two questions. What is the liquid types in a general? And then how did you stumble across this and decide, this is what I want my graduate studies to be. I want to dig in. And as you picked up Haskell, Apparently, liquid types clicked with you enough that said, I'm going to go port this to Haskell from an ML. I'm going to take these research papers and make a PhD out of this. So what was that thinking that drew you to liquid types? And for anybody who's unfamiliar with the concept as named, what are liquid types? Okay, so what is the thing that clicked to me, liquid types on Haskell? It didn't click before I started. So the way that grad school works is that you are accepted by a supervisor. My supervisor was Randy Jalla. And you spend the first three months or something 
discussing with your supervisor what is a cool project you want to go on, or um, there is an existing project and you just start working in an existing project with other students. And the way it works for me, I joined UCSD with Randzella and he told me, okay, I have liquid types working for ML and Randzi told me, I want to learn Haskell, so I started porting liquid types to Haskell. I have a very small code base, and he didn't have any other projects to give me. So he said, I'll give you the code base and just start porting existing examples and see where it goes. And I just found the project interested, and I started working on it, and I didn't really know where it would go. or I liked it. So I just continue working on it. So the way grad school works is generally there are many projects that a student starts on and during the project they realize that it doesn't go anywhere and they stop or they try to modify the project or they try to stop this project at all and join a different project. But this was not my case. Okay, so I can tell you a little bit about Liquid Haskell. So Liquid Haskell is liquid type checker for Haskell programs. This means that it takes as input a Haskell code with some specifications, and these specifications are of the form of refinement types. And the specification and the code goes through Liquid Haskell, and Liquid Haskell will answer safe if it can prove that the code satisfies the specifications, and otherwise it will answer unsafe, which means that either the code has some bug or the specification has some bug, which means that maybe the specifications are wrong, they are not what the user had in the mind, or the specifications are too weak. It cannot prove that the code satisfies the specification that the user gave, even though they do hold. Okay, so what is refinement or liquid types now? So refinement types are basically the Haskell types refined with some logical predicates. So we have the Haskell type integer, and then we can have a refinement type that describes integers that moreover are different than zero. Where this different than zero is the logical predicate that refines the integer. So then our basic refinement type example is that we can give the division operator a type that says that give me an integer, give me an integer that is different than zero, and I'm going to give you back an integer. So with this type for the division operator, if you have this type specified and Liquid Haskell runs through your program, it proves that the specification that the second argument of the division operator is always different than zero. So you cannot have at runtime any division by zero exception. So all these checks do happen statically. Liquid Haskell is not going to run your code. And another interesting refinement type is, for example, you can have a function take that takes an index i and it takes a list or a string and it gives back the i first elements of the string. So you can give take a type that specifies that you take an argument i that is an integer and then you take a string whose length is always greater than the index i. And this is a very interesting type because with this type you specify that take cannot give back more elements than the input string. And this basically encodes memory safety. Because, for example, I don't know if you have heard about the heartbleed bug, that basically was a cryptographic violation, because 
It took an index, it took a string, and it could access more characters than the input string. And in these more characters, you could have store secure information about other users. And when you took something out of bounds, you got back a secure information that you were not allowed to take. So, okay, so Liquid Haskell takes as input code specifications as refinement types. And then using some type level uh, constraint generations, it reduces validity of specifications to implication checkings. And then we use an SMT solver to actually check these implications. So, for example, if you try to divide four with two, you know that two has a type that says that I am a value exactly equal to two. And you know that the second argument of division operator only accepts values that are different than zero. So Liquid Haskell will create an implication that says that if I know that the value is two, does this imply that the value is different than zero? And we'll give this implication to an SMT solver. And the solver will say, yes, I can prove this implication. Now, if I try to divide two with zero, then the application that will be created is, if I know that the value is zero, can I prove that this value is different than zero? So the SMT solver will say, no, I cannot prove that, and your program will be rejected. But then, of course, you can divide something with a variable x. So then you will give an SMT solver an implication that says, under all this information that I have in my environment, can you prove that x is different than zero? And the SMT solver will go through all the information that you gather in your environment and will try to prove that x is different than zero. And it will either say safe, your division is safe if it can prove it, or it would say unsafe, which means either that I don't have enough information to prove it or that this implication does not actually hold. Okay, and that gives a good rundown. And we've kind of talked about some of the stuff at a high level because it sounds similar-ish to some of the concepts in dependent types, which previous guests have made mention to. But you talk about liquid Haskell and refinements. Is refinements part of liquid Haskell or is refinement something liquid Haskell builds on that people could have refinements in their stuff without taking advantage of liquid Haskell? Are those two hand in hand or are those two separate things that play well together and are built upon? Okay, so so you mentioned dependent types, you mentioned refinement types, and you mentioned liquid types, and there is a very small difference between all these concepts. So before I tell the difference, I want to say that, so what Liquid Haskell actually takes as input is a Haskell code, and then you use comments, Haskell comments, that have the at, so they are special comments that Liquid Haskell interprets. So we get an, as input the Haskell source code and these special comments within which you write your refinement type specifications. So Liquid Haskell is basically Haskell, any Haskell code, extended with these special comments in which the user can give the refinement type specifications. So how is refinement types different than liquid types is another interesting question. So we have dependent types that basically say that types can depend on values and allow any arbitrary values to appear within the types. And then we have refinement types that say types can mention values and can depend on values, but not arbitrary values. 
types can only mention expressions from Haskell from your language, but these expressions should belong to a decidable theory. So that all this implication checking that I described before can decidable and fast be decided by an SMT solver. An SMT solver is a decision procedure that decides implications, but there are some theories that are called uh, decidable theories for which the SMT solver has fast decision procedures that are always going to give an answer, either yes or not. So refinement type says, I am not going to allow you to talk about arbitrary program expressions. I am only going to allow you to talk about expressions for which there is a decidable procedure. For example, you can talk about linear arithmetic or uninterpreted functions or other theories for which the SMT solver knows how to decide fast. And these are refinement types. And then liquid types are basically refinement types for which we have type inference. So liquid types, yeah, are refinement types for which we have type inference, which means that the user doesn't have to annotate every expression of your code. But there is a liquid types inference algorithm that is going to find proper types for all the expressions that are not annotated. Okay, and I think that helps clear it up a little bit for me. Still kind of fuzzy since I haven't actually done much with dependent types or liquid or refinements at all. So still interesting to know, but helps settle that boundary to know where those where one thing starts and one thing stops. Because as you were describing some of that stuff, it kind of equated to dependent types, but I figured there was something different. But that helps clear up some of these things. And so... You've got this SMT solver, you've got this stuff. You also mentioned if I have take and I have a string or if I have some other list of stuff, that eventually we can try and figure out if it's decidable or not that says if I'm going to take X and string Y, that via the SMT solver somehow, some kind of magic. I think the M and SMT stands for magic, but <laughs> that's just me since I don't understand it. But... It magically says, okay, you've got some arbitrary string or arbitrary list of some length that you got from somewhere that I'm passing in. You've got some arbitrary value of an integer that you've passed in at well. And you're probably saying it's non-negative as well with that constraint on it that says this is a non-negative integer. But it's also less than, and the string is also greater than that integer for the length or the list, I should say. The SMT solver does some kind of magic. Is there something for with me as a user when I specify that, that I do to help the SMT do its magic? Or is the SMT just that magic that it can usually figure that out without help and it will still determine if it's safe or unsafe? Essentially, what kind of extra hints as a programmer do I have to give beyond that? Take X, that's non-negative integer, and y, that's a list, and the list is length of greater than x. Do I get away with just doing that, or do I just sometimes need to give some hints elsewhere in the system to help make sure that this can be verified as safe? So this is a very good question. I wish the answer was you don't have to do anything else. You just specify that. So yes, the idea is exactly what you said. So I have a library function. This library function is take, and I know that I should not take more elements than the ones appear in my argument. 
yeah, in my library, I have this specification that says you're not allowed to take this function. And then in my client, I have like a big program and randomly in my program, this take appears. Yeah, so this take may be applied to constants and then everything is good. The SMT will figure everything out automatically. So this take may be applied to arguments of a function. So if I have a top level function, and I have i and t, and then down in my body, I take i elements of t. Then in the specification for the top level function, I have to say that the length of t is greater than or equal to i. So yeah, basically the user needs to propagate the constraints from the usage of take to as high in the code as they can appear. And so another example of argument of take is, for example, I can take i elements where i is the result of a function application. So i is equal to f of j, where f is some function and j is some argument. Then the user needs to specify that this function f has the proper refinement type specification. So at this application, I know that the result i has the appropriate properties. So for example, if I need to prove that the result i is a positive number and I apply it to j that I know that j is a natural number, the function f that I apply should say that my result is always greater than my argument. This is like a trivial example, but this is how I propagate. So I need to annotate all the top level functions with the strongest specification so that I can prove that finally, whenever I call take, I have the proper information so that the SMT solver can combine all the information from all the function applications and everything in the gather from the body of the function to prove the appropriate constraints. And so the other interesting things is that at top level, I'll get some information that probably cannot determine statically. So I'm going to read a user input or I'm going to read the string. So the goal is that at top level, whenever I go into my code, I can do some runtime checks to assert that these runtime checks satisfy all the conditions that the Haskell programs needs to know so that I statically prove everything. So the idea is that I have the function take somewhere in my code. And then I move the specifications up, up, up. And so at the beginning, every time I run my code, I do one check once to make sure that my input data satisfy the constraints that the take deep inside my code needs. So probably all the calls to take are safe. And so this is very important because if I want to have a safe, like memory safe take implementation, then what normal Haskell libraries do is that they wrap around time checks around take every time I take I integers from a, not a list, but from a, a string or every time I want to index I elements from the memory, then I have a runtime check that says that, okay, it is safe to index these I elements from the element. So instead of running these runtime checks every time I use take. I just run one runtime check at the beginning of my program 
and then Liquid Haskell can prove for you that all the takes within your programs are safe. And this is like very good because it saves you a lot of time from all the runtime checks. So actually on that, Gabriel Gonzalez has a very nice experiment that he actually implemented a parser and he used two different take versions to manipulate a string for this parser. One of them was the safe version that ran runtime checks, and the other one was the unsafe version that didn't run any runtime checks, but it has the proper liquid type uh, specification that says that take cannot go out of bounds. And he actually proved that without the runtime checks, his code was something like six times faster, which is a great deal because it is faster and it probably is not going to have any memory violations. And that was one of the things I was starting to think about at the beginning as you explained it away was I started wondering if I call take, my top level doesn't propagate, but I have that runtime check if Liquid Haskell does it and takes care of that that says, oh, by the way, oh, right before you call take somewhere in this other function or whatever, somewhere up that call stack that you've manually done the check that says the cond, the pattern match, the condition or whatever that says where i is less than the list of the length, now call take. So you're saying that we can get rid of that and just propagate those types up. And then that check that we would have to do inside of our code before calling take and then decide, well, I can either call take or I can do something else. That can go away now. And I just say, I can always safely call take now. Yes, I mean, if you're missing information, if you say, if, if Liquid Haskell says that I cannot prove that this specific take is fine, then this is at least how I am debugging the Liquid type errors. I say, okay, if I assume that this I here, this index specify this condition, can Liquid Haskell prove it? And this assumes mean basically put into the environment, into the logic, the information that I has these and these properties. And this translates to a runtime check. But this is how I debug, meaning that if Liquid Haskell knows this information here, it, your program is safe. And which means that without this user-specified assertion, Liquid Haskell doesn't know this information, which means that at some point of the path in your code, Liquid Haskell is missing out this information. So there is most probably a function that doesn't have a strong enough specification or there is a source that some information is lost for the properties or this I. So then the user needs to start to make stronger types of the global functions to give the information that Liquid Haskell needs to prove that this take is actually safe. And the, the other thing it sounded like you touched on with that is, in the beginning you said, this is static analysis, not runtime. If I compile with, Liquid Haskell, it sounds like, that some of those runtime checks can be inserted in at the top level and at certain points where when I'm bounding with this input, Liquid Haskell kind of puts some other assumptions in that are runtime assertions that say, hey, you just inputted a list of five things and you asked for seven things out of that as a user. Does Liquid Haskell inject that stuff in? Is that what I was getting at? Or... When you were saying these runtime checks and runtime contracts and validation at the top level, what is what did you mean by that? Because I want to make sure we get that clear instead of 
kind of ambiguous for people to interpret in different ways. So, no, Liquid Haskell is not touching your code, is not inserting anything. The user has to insert all these runtime assertions manually so that Liquid Haskell gets satisfied and says that your program is safe. So Liquid Haskell only deals with static analysis of your code, and we are using GHC to get all the intermediate representations and do all the analysis. So basically, when you run Liquid Haskell of your code, you have whatever runtime the GHC gives you. So we don't deal with that. So manually inserting these checks when verification fails is a very interesting future work. It touches the idea of gradual refinement types and gradual verification, which means that, okay, I have an unsafe program and I know that I want to satisfy this. How do I gradually verify that? Which means like, uh, yeah, this is a, a different field, maybe we don't want to discuss this today, but this deals with inserting runtime checks automatically for you. Liquid Haskell does not change your runtime semantics, but the user can assert these checks so that Liquid Haskell is satisfied. Okay, so that's me as a consumer at some level making another declaration that I've got in X in my, for my take, and then I somehow add a refinement at some point saying, I've verified this. I know X is less than the list of this length. Now you can verify this as safe, Liquid Haskell, because I've added that extra information somehow. And as people get into Liquid Haskell, they can figure out how to do that specifically. But the premise is, when I write this, I annotate that and tell Liquid Haskell this. You mean you add a runtime check? Oh, well, I would do that check. And maybe at runtime, well, like for a runtime check that says, I can now be assured that if I go down this path, that X is less than the list. Yeah. So hopefully Liquid Haskell will figure everything out itself. But there are some points that information is missing. So what you can do as a user is you can insert this assert automatically with a function that is called liquid assert that automatically comes with liquid Haskell and this liquid assert says, okay, you can assume this over here and at runtime, I am going to create a runtime check. But yeah, this is again, uh, user specified. Okay. And that makes sense. And you kind of touched on gradual stuff, but don't want to dig into that too deep. But the question I have is more around when you run liquid Haskell on your code base. Is there the granularity that you can check Liquid Haskell against that says, I know my whole program might be unsafe because I'm pulling in some libraries which people haven't type checked, but can I bound Liquid Haskell to a certain subset of this stuff that says, in this area, I want to know that I'm safe, even though I'm dependent on lenses or the file writers or the string buffers or whatever else that's out there that might not have been annotated with Liquid Haskell, but I still want to use those in my program. Is there a way to kind of bubble that up instead of just getting a, you're unsafe just because I can't figure this out because you're using other dependencies? Yes. So Liquid Haskell runs by module or by file. So I am going to check one file, the file that I wrote against Liquid Haskell. 
And this file can import everything, can import lenses or any other library that you said. But the thing is that for every function that I import, I know nothing. So I know that every function takes arguments that satisfy true and returns arguments that satisfy true. So, okay, Liquid Haskell will run at the module that I wrote. And then again, like we can say at some point, we have a notation to tell Liquid Haskell, okay, assume that this function is true. Like, don't check it. I know it's wrong, but I don't want to deal with this function right now. So you can say, I don't want to check this. Yes. And then many times, if I use libraries to verify my code, I need to assume sub properties about the functions that I import from different libraries. So then again, Liquid Haskell lets you write, assume that this function from lens always returns a natural number. Again, we are not going to check this assumption about imported functions for the simple reason that we don't have the code for these functions, but verification will be safe, assuming that all these imported functions satisfy the specification that the user wrote. Okay, and that makes sense. And it's one of those things I've seen dialyzer in Erlang where it's wanting to make sure as much it reports everything it can that is true and if there's anything it can't it kind of says I don't know which is essentially what it sounds like Liquid Haskell at the high level is doing where it's I absolutely positively for sure know this is safe if I can't be 100% on that I'm going to say unsafe there yep. it could be a way but again when you deal with legacy code it's like it's code someone else wrote that's what I was wondering. It's like, that seems one of those ways that become easy to contaminate if you can't bound it off in the same way that people talk about the IO will contaminate a bunch of your functions. If you can't say, oh, just ignore this part. Like this part, I know I want to check. So it sounds like you've got the good story there. Yeah. And then people can always go back and contribute to whatever library it is that they use and say, how can I help annotate Liquid Haskell and put a pull request in and say, Let's get this and slowly propagate this over and know that some libraries will never be ported. Yeah, actually, we have a, a good story about famous libraries. So, for example, for the data list libraries or for byte string libraries or for other libraries that are heavily used in Haskell, when you import Liquid Haskell, you import annotations for these libraries that are not checked, but that you most probably need to check any usable code in your program. And so the other interesting feature of Liquid Haskell is that we care on making something that is usable. And I am very flexible on saying that you can get Liquid Haskell to say that a program is safe, but with assumptions. And this with assumptions means that your program may actually crash, but you have a very high confidence that it does what you want. But yeah, you can use a stream and have unsoundness, but still we have a very usable tool that people in the Haskell community would be more willing to use than if we offered no backdoor for using library functions. And that's one of those things I heard about Haskell was there's a certain subset of those libraries that a lot of other libraries depend on. And it's like, well, nope, sorry, we just... We just screwed this. Hopefully you're writing something that's pure. I figured you went that route, but it was, it was about establishing what that looks like for people who haven't checked it out and know that we've got a nice story here. 
don't be afraid that this is going to be polluted and you're not going to be able to use this at all when you pull it into your project. You can slowly start to gradually introduce it, it sounds like, because you control which modules you want to make those assumptions on. And it's not just, we're going to do everything on your code base now. Yeah. I think that uh, Haskell itself is using this approach, right? I mean, it tells you that if you write a code that type checks, most probably you're not going to get errors apart if you use, for example, unsafe I.O. Because there are points that you need to use unsafe I.O. to do something like that you really want to do, but then you know that you don't get the safety guarantees that Haskell gives you without this option. So yeah, it is like a deal between uh, usability and being a hundred percent sure about the safety of your tool. So what haven't we covered that becomes some of these selling points for Liquid Haskell? Having not gotten in, having only very cursory knowledge that it's out there, what are some of these other things that we haven't talked about that you try and say, oh yeah, by the way, if you've heard all this, this is what else Liquid Haskell gets you. It, there's this other stuff that it gets you. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you think makes good selling points for people who are familiar with Haskell or are looking at Haskell and maybe like the idea of this as you talk about it that says, but wait, there's more. You get this. We're not done. Yeah, there is a lot more. <laughs> so as I mentioned at the beginning, the difference between refinement types and dependent types is that refinement types give you this SMT-based automatic verification. They give you the magic of SMTs to decide the validity of your code, but they come at the disadvantage of restricting the specifications that you can write in your code. And this is bad because, as we said, you can give functions like take or the crashing functions some specifications, but then the whole deal of verification is how do you propagate these annotations to the time where you get the input of your code. And in these propagations, maybe you need to express something that is not expressed in these decidable logics that the refinement types let you write. So what I have been working on like the past years and what I still work on is how do you keep all these nice properties about decidable type checking and inference, but still be more and more expressive? So my goal is to end up and saying there is nothing you cannot express in Liquid Haskell. And we have some nice stories about the ways that you can extend expressiveness. But what I am working on right now is how do you put into your logic Basically, recursive functions. So I have a function append that appends two lists. And I have a recursive definition of this function that says that if my first argument is the empty list, then return the second argument, else return the head of the second argument, and then recursively call append on the tail of the first argument and the second argument. So this is a recursive definition. And append has very interesting properties. So for example, it's associative. So how do I express associativity of append in the logic and how do I prove it? And so the difficult part about this is that the logic should know the definition of append. To prove associativity of append, I should unfold the definition of append 
appropriately so that uh, uh, yes, so that I prove associativity of a band. And it's a good question on like how do you teach the logic and the solver about the definition of a band? And what most SMT-based verifiers do is basically give an axiom in the logic that says that for every input x and y, if x is empty, then append of x, y is equal to y, else, and they express the recursive definition of append as an axiom into the logic. But the bad thing with this, with this is that if at some point in my proof obligations I have an occurrence of append x, y, then I have the axiom that tells me exactly what is the definition of append x, y in the logic, and then the solver can go on and forever apply this axiom to every unfolding. So verification will not stop. So the, the SMT, like the magic of the SMT will be lost or it will be useless because it will never tell me the result because it will get stuck unfolding the axiom of append. So what I'm working on right now is I want to teach the logic, the definition of append, but by keeping this magical, decidable uh, verification of the SMT solvers. And my solution is like, do not tell anything to the SMT solver about the whole definition of append. But every time that you are using append on some specific arguments, X and Y, then put in the logic exactly one equality that says append of X, Y is equal to that. So there is no axiom, there is no way to get an infinite loop trying to open append many times. I just know that append on specific arguments x and y has this thing. So then with this, every time I, I write down the Haskell append, in the logic I know exactly one quality of append. So with this, I can prove theorems about append, for example, append associative, but the user has to provide exactly the inputs in which I have to unfold append to persuade liquid Haskell that append is associative. So in short, I can prove properties about recursion function, but the user needs to provide explicit proofs. The good thing about this is that all these proofs are done in Haskell and are checked by liquid Haskell. So what I say after implementing this is that you can treat liquid Haskell as a theorem prover. You can prove any random properties. But the bad side of all this technique is that the user should manually specify the proofs. And most of the times these proofs look bad. And the reason why I need these proofs is again, as I said, like, as I am verifying easy stuff, like take, at some point, maybe information is going to get lost because I need to prove that append is associative to propagate this information. So now I have, like, Liquid Haskell gives you a way to prove complicated theorems and complicated properties of your functions in Liquid Haskell. And you can use this at the very few points of verification that you really need this theorem, but the user has to specify all these proofs. And the fact that you start to have a proof system sounds interesting as well, especially if you're writing the proofs in the language that you're writing your software in. Because I've heard a couple of other solvers and things like this. You write your proofs in one thing, you write your code in another, and then they kind of have to be intermixed and intermingled. But if you're still doing this with the types in Haskell, you're still doing some of the theorems, 
in Haskell, you're still doing some of the proofs in Haskell along with your code in Haskell. It seems like a good fit that these things are still all in the same basic domain and you're not jumping back and forth between two or three or four different software pieces to try and get this all together. So that sounds like an extra nice feature as well that aside from just type declarations, there are more proofs and theorems and lemmas or whatever that people talk about, but you're still thinking in Haskell. Yes, you're actually proving properties about the real functions that you're going to run. And this function may depend on library functions that are super optimized because it's Haskell and people have optimized the libraries. They may depend or use like the high-level parallelism that Haskell has. They use all the features that the real-world programming language Haskell has and still we can use it as a theorem prover, which is, yeah, it's, it's, I, I like it a lot too. But there are many things to be done. For example, the fact that the user right now has to provide all explicit proofs is quite annoying. And the next steps is like, there are many theorem provers that have very fancy tactics about proof generation. For example, uh, the Coq people have been working on proof automation and generation for many years. So it is very interesting to see how all these existing mature theories can be embedded to this Haskell as a theorem prover idea. And so it sounds like you've got some visions of things you're going to want to work on in the future. So it sounds like you'll be working on this for a while. I'm not quite sure how a postdoc plays in after you get your doctorate. But it sounds like you're going to be working on Liquid Haskell for at least your foreseeable future as of now. And sounds like there's a nice good roadmap that you've got in your head of, oh, this isn't done. This is still beginning and it'll keep going. And sounds like you've still got the excitement of all this stuff going. So it sounds like it's got a good future in front of it. And it's not just one of those things. It's like some people finish their PhD dissertation. And it's like, yes, it's neat. It's provable. I defended it, but we're not really going to use this. This is one of those things only in theory. So it sounds like you've got it set and you've actually managed to get something that is applicable and continuing. So I want to congratulate you on the work and the PhD of this and setting that out and actually having something that people are excited about because it looks like the, at least from the Twitterverse that I see, there is some excitement about Liquid Haskell and its usage. So. It looks like it's got something and worth checking out for people who are getting into Haskell as well. Just starting fresh, it may be worth starting with Liquid Haskell instead of just starting with Haskell. And then like, now I got to backport some of this stuff. It helps solidify those things too. Would you, would you kind of put Liquid Haskell in that domain of go ahead and start putting these liquid type annotations and refinement annotations as you start learning Haskell and just start using Liquid Haskell from the beginning? Yeah, and this is a good thing. You can start using Liquid Haskell from the beginning, not only as a way to learn Haskell, but as a way to learn formal proofs. And I know my supervisor is teaching it in his grad course class, how to use Liquid Haskell as a proof method. But yeah, it's, it's a very nice introduction about exactly what you need to learn so that you can formalize proofs so that a machine, now this machine is liquid Haskell, can check them. And yeah, I do believe 
in Liquid Haskell. And I like it a lot that there are users and there are people who are excited for it. I mean, it is still a research tool in the sense that we have many bug reports that we don't have time to fix. And it is true that if you push it a lot, I mean, there are ways, as we discussed before, to make assertions, to make function assertions and make it unsound. If you do use it with features that we haven't tested before, you may crash it. But also because, like, GHC is also advancing very fast. So they keep adding language extensions and they keep adding features. And we have to keep up with whatever GHC is adding. So yeah, it is a research tool. You may crash it, but uh, it works well. And I do believe that it is, it will stay and it has something to give to the Haskell community. Well, and to be fair, it's not, from what everything I hear about Haskell, Haskell is still the research tool because there's so many research projects that go and extend Haskell that, as you said, it's continually growing. Things are being continually added on. And it's just the whole language in the whole ecosystem sounds like a giant research tool that people are using, though, in the real world. And they're finding the stuff that's more stable and safer and realize this part's research, but maybe we take this. Yeah. The good thing is that all these new features are guarded by language extensions, so you don't have to use them if you don't want to use them. The bad thing is that I believe that in general, all these features may affect the time that it takes for a project to build, because it's like if you add more, maybe it gets slower. But... I don't know. I think that Haskell has, yeah, it has done it. It has merged both the research and the industry communities because there is a lot of research, definitely. But also the number of companies that are using Haskell these days is growing. I know big companies like at least Facebook is using Haskell for real world applications. So yeah, I, I, I don't know where this will go or if People will say, do not touch the Haskell compiler with research anymore. But right now, I think that the coexistence between the research and the industry community is pretty nice. And it seems nice to get that feedback from something that's a research thing, seeing how it applies to real world, getting that feedback in, circling back and getting that feedback back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, seems to help drive and make it better instead of just Here's something we're putting out there. Nobody's using it. Or even if you give a feedback, we're not responding to that feedback. So Haskell does sound like it's got one of those benefits of that nice integration between the research side and the industry side and how they help inform and drive forward the language. Yeah, I mean, this is this is very good because I am more excited now that I get feedback about my research and this motivates me and gives me reasons to keep doing it. and. I believe that this is one of the main reasons why Liquid Haskell was successful, while, for example, the ML version of Liquid Types didn't make it, because the Haskell community is very open. They absorb everything you give them, and they come back with feedback, and they're very eager to experiment. And, yeah, I mean, this this is nice, and it motivates you. And then the fact that the industry is using it gives you a lot of 
realistic examples and it encourages you to spend all this extra engineering effort that you don't really need to get a PhD, but you need it if you actually want the the product that you're making to stay and to actually be used by somebody in the real world. And so we've sold people on Liquid Haskell. They listen to this episode. They say, I want to use this. Where do you direct people to to start finding out more, figuring out how to integrate this in their projects, figuring out how to take advantage of this? What are the good places for people to find out more and start getting understanding and the getting started guides and other people about recommendations of this? Where do you point people to to go find out more information, get started, and dig a little deeper? So we have the Liquid Haskell website that we actually blog sometimes. We should blog more, but there is a lot of introductory information from our blog post. And there is also a very good link that you can try Liquid Haskell online. So there is a demo that you write your code, you write your specifications in Liquid Haskell, and you press the check button, and they send queries to UCSD server, and they come back. And then uh, we have a Liquid Haskell uh, tutorial. It is like a book with small examples. And this is also pretty nice because in the tutorial, you have like this text with code and with annotations, and you can actually press the button within the tutorial and edit the text and ask Liquid Haskell. And then if you want to download it, you can get it uh, with Cabal install or Stack install. And we have the GitHub repo of our project. It is online. You can download it from there if you want the latest version. We are still working on it, so it is changing a lot. And then we are very responsive in the GitHub page. So if you try it and you find a bug or you crash it, you should uh, file an issue. We will answer. I hope we will fix it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, then we have the mailing list of the Liquid Haskell. And I think that's all we have about how to learn Liquid Haskell. Well, that sounds like a good wide variety of places for people to go check out, keep up to date, see what's going on in the future with Liquid Haskell, as I'm sure you're making announcements all over those places as well. Do you have any appearances coming up? Is there anything else that people should be watching out for in the future from you? Yeah, so next week I will be in Lambda Days in Poland, and I'm giving a talk there. And then at the end of March, I am keynoting the Type Level Summit. And then I have uh, already a tutorial scheduled at PLDI that will describe refinement types and how they can be used for both program verification and program synthesis. And that's all I've got. Okay, and I'll get those links to those conferences added to the show notes. So I know Lambda Days, if you can't make it, they put their videos out pretty regularly. So people can go back and find those conference pages and track you down and watch the videos, at least if they can't make it and check in with you in person or watch your video, watch your presentation at the conference if they're not going to be there. So we'll get that added as well. Great. So where can people come across you and find out what you're doing, how you're contributing, what other stuff is exciting you and keep up to date with what's going on in your world. So yeah, as I mentioned, I try to write some blog posts about what I do in Liquid Haskell. 
but I'm not very consistent on that. And otherwise, I am using Twitter. You can find me as Nikki Vazu. And I post most of my updates there. Okay, and I'll get the links to all the Liquid Haskell resources that I find and your your blog and your Twitter account in the show notes as well so people can go find those and come back to the show notes as they're listening and maybe away from their computer and find out more and follow you and keep up to date with what's going on. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Nikki, and congratulations on your recent PhD accomplishment. And it was very informative finding out more about Liquid Haskell and figuring out where all this fits in the community and what's coming down the line and how the things are evolving in the Haskell ecosystem. And Liquid Haskell looks like one of those tools that if you're using Haskell, that it's not a far stretch and you get a lot more power with when you integrate it into your system. So thanks for taking your time talking to me today and enlightening me and most likely the audience about Liquid Haskell and what it's capable of. Thank you, Proctor. It was very nice chatting with you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.